You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic, and welcome to episode 173. And Fran, you still left reviews on here, but I don't think uh, that's supposed to be there. No, uh, no. I just okay. wanted to see if you were paying attention. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll delete that. <laughs> but we have some uh, really, well, one, good guests, but two, very close guests today in proximity to where we are right now. Yes. So, which is the same place we always are. We're not, we're not in a different place. They just happen to be really close to where we are. Can we so. just get an RV, hook this up, just start traveling yeah, Make around. it a mobile road show. Yeah, mobile road yeah. show. I would like that. Can we do that? Uh, I don't know if that's in our budget. Okay. It's, which is, we don't have a budget. It's zero dollars. It's as, as, need, as needed. Oh, if we need something new. Okay. Well, maybe we can save up and buy it. We can it. scrape up for it. <laughs> But, but I do want to get right into this one today and introduce Mike, Aaron, and Lori from Woodford Cedar Run Wildlife Refuge because um, they do a lot of really cool stuff down there revolving around native plants, wildlife, uh, birds, right? There's all kinds of stuff. So why don't we start with Mike? Mike, why don't you introduce yourself? And then uh, we'll do Mike, Aaron, then Lori because when we throw it out to everyone, it just ends up being no one talks. So <laughs> the order is Mike, Aaron, Lori. Uh, Mike, take it away. Of course. Well, first of all, thank you so much for for having us. We were really excited um, to be to be featured on this this podcast. Um, so, my name is Mike O'Malley. I'm the executive director at Cedar Run. I've been at Cedar Run now for about 13 years. Um, I actually started as an intern in the Wildlife Hospital. Um, so Cedar Run, for those of you that don't know, is a 171-acre wildlife refuge, nature center, and wildlife rehabilitation hospital in Medford, New Jersey. All right, Erin, your turn. I'm Erin Rounds. I'm the director of education at Cedar Run. Um, I've been there just a little bit longer than Mike. I've been there 14 years this year. Um, I started as a summer camp counselor. Um, then got up to a full-time position, and I've been the director of education um, since 2019. All right, Lori, your turn. My name is Lori Swanson. I'm the director of wildlife rehabilitation here at Cedar Run, and we're just going up in years. Um, I started <laughs> at Cedar Run in 2007 as a volunteer and moved to part-time staff in um, 2008, and then I became the director of wildlife rehabilitation in 2012. What I like awesome. that I just heard was that all of you started and stayed. How mm-hmm. how indicative is that of your staff? Um, I think that's that's pretty true across the board. Um, I mean, you you have some of the most tenured uh, staff persons uh, joining you today. Um, we have one person that's not here today that has been with us since 1989. Okay. Um, but a lot of the staff does come and stay. Um, I think that's true, not just of staff, but of volunteers as well. Um, once you, you get involved here, you a lot of people we find fall in love and then one thing leads to another and you end up being here for years and years and years and the time just flies by. <laughs> yeah, I think like most nonprofits, it's really passion driven. 
And so once you find something that clicks, you just can't imagine not being involved in it ever again. Oh, that's awesome. So I, I would love if if you could explain for our listeners that aren't familiar with you a little bit of the history of Cedar Run. But real quick because I always say we go off topic and I'm going to go off topic immediately <laughs> and I probably should write it down for later. But given your location and when I think of Medford, New Jersey, I don't think of it as an area that's going to have a preserve of this size in it because it's you – know, if, if, if you've driven down – 295 or 206 in, in that area it can be a little not congested but a little bit more built up is, is Rin, i think you're you're stereotyping medford <laughs> do you that's, think so what it sounds like to me yeah uh, uh, well and i think <laughs> for people who aren't familiar with that area in new jersey uh at least in my mind there's two medfords there's the medford you're talking about yes. and then there's also like the pine barrens like medford, medford lakes, medford lakes yeah. where it's uh log cabins and you feel like you went back to the old west for a portion of time when you're driving around. But, so, yeah. I, I, do you, does that make it more difficult being in a more more populated area, what you do? Is there more pressure on the preserve because of this, or, or is that not something you've ever witnessed? Um, I think yes and no. Um, I mean, for context, Cedar Run, the land was, was purchased when people were not interested in Pine Barrens land. Um, the, the the founders of Cedar Run, Betty and Jim Woodford, bought 185 acres, which was the original tract of land for $5,600. Wow. Which is unimaginable, <laughs> not just Medford, but anywhere, you know, in today's day and age, even with, you know, inflation. Um, but really, at the time, nobody really was wanted this type of property in the middle of the woods. Um, but for us, I think it's definitely a mixed bag. I mean, obviously, the more encroachment you have on wild areas, the more human-wildlife interactions there are. So that definitely causes issues. Um, but we also do need the support of the public, um, you know, to, to donate and make our work possible because we are a nonprofit and we rely completely on donations to operate. So being in proximity to people in that way is great um, because it allows people to come out and visit, get involved, and to have that community resource of a wildlife hospital if if they do encounter um, injured or orphaned wildlife. A lot of most places don't have that, you know, proximity. Now, yeah, I, I think I'm sorry. I think for the wildlife too that we're certainly for our permanent residents, but especially the wildlife that we're rehabilitating, um, it's pretty ideal to have a little oasis um, of quietness. There might be homes around us, but we really want them to have a peaceful setting for their rehabilitation before they're released. Um, So kind of being set back is ideal for them. But like Mike said, for people who are looking for um, a resource for an injured animal, you also don't want it to be, you know, an insane amount of time for them to to get to that resource. Um, and certainly for Erin and her team, I'm sure, you know, having, uh, you know, um, people to participate in their programs and be able to get out here and, uh, you know, is so important so they don't feel like it's a far reach. And I would imagine over time as things become more developed and there is more encroachment that your mission becomes more important uh, and more vital uh, as there's less land for wildlife and 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 more cars and more people, um, I would imagine that that there has to be an. I I would imagine that the amount of work that you do or help that you do has increased over the years because of those things. But if if we could talk about a little bit about the mission of your organization, um, 
what that is and just how it's changed over the years. Say like that since all of you have been there, how has that mission changed for you? Um, overall, um, I think, um, so our, t- today our mission is to protect New Jersey's native wildlife and habitats through education, conservation, and rehabilitation. So it's a, a three-pronged mission. So we have 171 preserved acres, um, but we also have the nature center um, and the environmental education team that's providing that public education. And then obviously the wildlife hospital. So from the, you know, the start of Cedar Run, the mission has definitely evolved. I'd say probably, you know, in, in the three of us in our time at Cedar Run, um, the mission has not changed. It's just intensified the need for the services that we provide. So um, Betty and Jim were, you know, the founders when they bought the property in 1951. They had just intended to have a summer cabin, um, never realizing what it would become one day. Um, they didn't even intend for it to be their permanent home. They, they built their permanent home here in 1957, but they were environmental educators. Um, Betty was definitely a Pine Barrens Ecology expert. So we actually started with environmental education. Um, and then one of the, the locals found an orphan gray horned owl and thought, who but Betty Woodford would know what to do with this thing. <laughs> So that's where it all started in the garage of the house, that first orphan gray horned owl. Um, so last year we took in 6,072 animals. So wow. from one to over 6,000, it's obviously grown quite a bit. Um, and then the land, of course, um, the land was permanently preserved in 1997 under a Green Acres grant. So all of these things have always been part of Cedar Run, but it's just been formalized over the years um, like when we were established as a nonprofit, when the land was formally preserved, when we built a wildlife hospital, and when we hired a full-time education staff, uh, we just developed over the years. We actually – one of our employees brought a litter of baby bunnies there just like maybe two months ago, I want to say. Do you know about that, Tom? I didn't know about that, <laughs> but I knew about a – there was a, a younger uh, – great horned owl that was at recurring guest uh daryl kabeski sunset farmstead (laughs) (laughs) he's been on a bunch of times but they found it and uh they called me to get in contact with my brother because he's good just good with animals and um and then that was they were saying well where can we take this and i just i happen to remember that you guys had the that whole program so i think they ran it down there that was Mm -hmm. Maybe back in June, yeah. May. It wasn't that long ago. When we were doing the the company weeding down in mm-hmm. the field, yeah. it was uh, a whole nest was discovered, and it had to be moved. Mm-hmm. And you, you can ima- as you can imagine, like rabbits can be difficult in a nursery <laughs> oh, <laughs> because yeah. because of what they like to eat. But it was such a big deal that one of the employees actually brought brought all the the, the baby rabbits to the uh, yeah. preserve. Rabbit moms don't. Pick the best places to make. <laughs> no, um, no, they love to not. choose the middle of someone's yard where they have a lot of dogs. They love flower pots. Really fun places. So we get a lot of questions about rabbit nests for sure. But they're my favorite. So <laughs> yeah, now we know who to call. Conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're our most common patient. They make up about a quarter of all the animals. That wow. 
Wow, that's amazing. So I thought maybe it would be a good place because it's so diverse what you do and and you do so many wonderful things. I thought maybe a good place to start would be if each of you could describe what you do, um, kind of what you're in charge of and what your programs entail. And I'm sure there's there's many diverse programs and offerings that aren't even covered by the three of you. So maybe if you can each go through what you do and then we can kind of fill in the blanks after the fact. Erin, would you like to start? Sure. Um, so I'm the director of education. Um, we have a pretty large education program. We see um, kids from you know ages two all the way up to senior citizens. Um, we have a lot of different things that people could come and see and do. Um, either come and visit us for a field trip and explore the Pinelands a little bit, maybe do some watershed eco- eco- ecology, um, see our resident wildlife. Um, but we also travel offsite and we bring the animals to folks that aren't able to come and see us. Um, We have homeschool programs. We do preschool classes. um, We do night hikes. We do all sorts of great stuff. Um, We see roughly uh, 20,000 people a year through our education programs. Um, Last year was a little higher. We were about 22,000. And as crazy as it sounds, COVID has been really great for our education programs um, because people couldn't necessarily go out to the movies or go out to dinner, but they could explore outside. Um, So we've kind of reeled a lot of people in that maybe didn't know about us before, found us during COVID, and we've been able to kind of keep them and help them um, to continue to enjoy nature. And how many people do you oversee for the education? uh, So we have, including myself, there are three full-time staff. Um, We also have six part-time staff who help us with our programming um, throughout the year. And then we run a pretty large summer camp. We see over 300 kids a summer. Um, So we have our summertime staff as well. Wow. It's, have, have you noticed a difference in since COVID, let's just say a difference in the base knowledge of the average person that comes for education purposes? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, People are definitely more comfortable outside than they used to be. Um, But there's definitely a lot of things that people um, are learning when they come and visit with us. And maybe they've just been taking walks, but not really, you know, exploring and doing that kind of thing. It's nice to hear that your numbers are increasing with the amount of people that you're working with throughout the course of the year. Tom and I always say we feel education is one of the key factors in anything with native plants or or restoration Mm -hmm. or ecology or or wildlife. Uh, If you can um, instill some of those base uh, values in the younger generation, it tends to follow them more through through life. It it makes a difference a little bit easier than trying to change, let's say, like my mom. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, we we even talked about it a little bit on the last episode with um, with recycling and how I don't know my whole I feel like my whole generation was just programmed blue bin paper cans plastic goes in there. It was a separate thing where I know even my parents who were environmentally conscious they it wasn't a a first instinct to them when recycling became more mainstream. Um, and then you see it with monarch butterflies in classrooms now that it's just like it's just having that in the classroom has a big impact, probably more of an impact than it would on an adult in the same kind of thing. So, yeah, it's a super important thing to have education about ecology and nature for for younger people. And we're, we're very lucky because we do have the wildlife as well. So not only are we just we teaching them about the mm-hmm. wildlife, they get to see the wildlife and experience it maybe in a different way that they wouldn't normally get to do. 
it, yeah, because you offer so many programs that interaction all connects together. Some sometimes people don't think of wildlife when they're out taking a nature walk. That's something that they're still a little afraid of or scared of, uh, especially if they're coming from a more urban setting. So to be able to be put in a comfortable situation where they can experience that all together is really I, I can't think of too many other places that I could recommend someone to go to have that experience. Uh, and I would say that's why I work here because there's no <laughs> other place nearby <laughs> that we can do so many great things. In this place. <laughs> and, and speaking of wildlife, why don't we go to Lori if you can tell us about what you do? Okay. Um, so yeah, so as the director of the Wildlife Hospital, um, I oversee the care of the six thousand over six thousand animals that come out to us. Um, in addition to our just over about 50 permanent residents that are here. So the animals that Erin is taking um, her visitors around to see um, are, those would be our permanent residents that couldn't be released due to their injuries. So from our eagle to squirrels to a white-tailed deer. So I will oversee the care of those with my staff. Um, I have, uh, much like Erin, I have three full-time staff members in the wildlife hospital and six part-time staff members, but we also have a full-time outside caretaker um, that helps us when there's animals move from the hospital to outside enclosures to continue their rehabilitation. Um, We oversee also about nine to 12 interns every year in addition to our volunteers. Um, So there's a lot of training that goes into those volunteers and interns for them to be able to help us give the best care to the wildlife that comes out to us. Um, I have 10 permits in my name to allow us to do the work that we do here for rehabilitation, Um, six of those through the state, um, and four of those are federal permits. Wow. So they're permits not just for rehabilitation, but to legally allow us to house permanent residents, to have endangered species, um, and, you know, pretty much uh, they cover everything uh, to allow us to do what we do here. Um, so we will take the animals in, they will spend time inside. We're determining, um, you know, what they need for their care, whether it's a baby animal that comes into us that is healthy, but orphaned and just needs to be raised until the point where it can be independent and successfully live on its own or an injured bird or raptor that comes to us with a broken wing that needs, you know, surgery or, um, you know, casting and things like that and rehabilitation to be released as well. So we kind of run the gamut and we take in almost everything that's native to New Jersey. We are legally not allowed to take domestic animals, um, but we take most of the native species to New Jersey. Um, So we're seeing just like you said, tiny rabbits that come out to us, very tiny songbirds that are displaced from their nest or orphaned. Um, and then the largest species would be more like um, we've gotten in coyote and red foxes, white-tailed deer. Wow. And and until you mentioned the permits, I hadn't even thought about it. It's not like if you were to find a, a bald eagle, you can just take it anywhere. You yeah. Like I would imagine that has to be someone that is allowed to take in – and. What kind of made me think about that? We had a talk with Eric Schrading from U.S. Fish and Wildlife at one point, and I knew someone that a, a Cooper's hawk had flown into the window, and he's like, they can't just dispose of that. Like, I need to know. Like, like call me and let me know. Mm-hmm. We want to come out and, and see. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, really? That's a thing? I didn't know that was <laughs> that was something that needed to be done. He's like, oh, yeah. So 
it's interesting you mentioned the permits because I hadn't thought about that. Like, and you mentioned the eagle, and that's not something that without those permits would you would you be able to just take an eagle in to no, to rehabilitate it? Not. Um, so the state and the federal government all have pretty strict guidelines as to the training that you have to undergo in order to gain these permits. Um, and so there's hour requirements and some states, you know, require you to take tests and things like that. Um, but they want you to go into this really knowing what you're doing. Um, as Mike said, Betty Woodford started with an owl in her garage um, and that's how most rehabilitation centers started. They started as what are called home rehabbers, and some of them grew into centers like Cedar Run, which are much larger. Um, but that's kind of how everybody started, and it was very unregulated at that point. Um, but fish and wildlife, whether it's federal or state, really recognize the importance of these regulations and making sure that, you know, there's standard protocols um, we have a national organization for wildlife rehabilitators. Um, they expect you to do continuing education um, and to really keep up with your skills because just like any field of science, it's just ever-changing and ever-improving. So um, rehabilitators really want to make sure that they're keeping up with that and having a good network between um, each of the centers as well so that we can continue that progress together. Um, but in order to be able to work with any wildlife in New Jersey, you have to have a permit. So it would be illegal for anybody to take a wild animal and try to rehabilitate it or raise it without a permit. Not everybody knows that's the case. And we hear that quite a bit. You know, people will find a baby squirrel and um, they will make an attempt to raise it. And they'll call and, you know, say, this isn't working. They're not doing great. Um, and they had no idea that it was illegal. Um, so then they will, of course, bring it out to us. But ideally, the situation should be, hopefully, they're aware of wildlife rehabilitators in their state and they get them to us as soon as possible. Before we go to Mike, what's the most interesting rehabilitation story that you have? Um, or is there one animal in particular that you remember, like a weird scenario? Um, there's so many. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, probably one of my favorites was, you know, every so often we will get in banded birds. And generally when we get raptors in, things like that, if they're adults, you don't really have a good sense of how old they are. Um, but the banded birds are nice because you can see where they came from and when they were banded, how old they were. And one of my favorites is um, a 25-year-old red tail hawk that came to us, obviously, from the wild. So she lived 25 years out there. And she came in with a fractured wing um, and also a pretty nasty wound that she had gotten because her feather shaft actually punctured through um, the skin. And so we treated her and were able to release her. So she's back out there, which is pretty cool for a 25-year-old. Um, and then probably my other favorite one was one of our most long-term patients, which was a black vulture that had had all of its feathers singed um, after it flew over a methane flare. And... Every feather on the body was um, destroyed. So we, of course, it was winter. So we had to provide him supplemental heat and things like that when he was outside. Um, but we had to wait until he molted out and regrew every single feather on his body. And it took us about 405 days to release him. So he was with us for a really long time, um, but a really great, you know, turnaround story but very indicative of the, you know, different amounts of time that animals are going to need in care. Some just need a few days and some need over a year. Wow. And we're, I, I guess we'll get into this, but funding for all of this wonderful work, 
Mike, I guess this is probably a good transition for what you do, and and maybe you can also, <laughs> yes, you know, because this is fantastic. But where does the money come from for this? And maybe as we get through this, you can talk about some of the other uh, offerings the refuge has that maybe we hadn't covered already. We Absolutely. do love we do love to say they don't come with health insurance because that is very true. <laughs> they sure don't. They sure don't. You don't get to just submit a claim. The <laughs> Blue Cross Blue Shield. <laughs> well, I did also want to highlight, we were talking so much about the permits. I know a lot of folks have um, strong feelings about permits and they think that they're silly or restrictive or they provide a barrier. And, and we always try to to tell people, you know, if, if you were hit by a car, like a lot of our patients are, wouldn't you want your doctor to have some type of certification or be, you know, a trusted source. I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to be in someone's garage with a pile of Cheerios if I were hit by a car. Yeah, yeah I wouldn't want to get hit by a car and have the guy say, I know a guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's even, you know, if you compare it to your, your cat or your dog, I mean, you want your vet to be providing the best possible care. Um, so it's the same with wildlife. Um, the permits are just a way to, you know, to try to ensure that the animals are getting the, the best possible care. I mean, Lurie at this point has been working for almost two decades, um, refining her, her skills, you know, and rehabilitating wildlife. It's obviously going to give a wild animal a much better chance than to, you know, a well-intentioned but inexperienced person in the public. Um, and I think that's true of a lot of centers. You know, we want to just make sure that these animals are getting the best possible care because especially with some of the endangered and threatened species, you know, you have to treat everyone like they're the last. Mm-hmm. Um, so to answer your, your funding <laughs> question, my, my position at Cedar Run isn't nearly as exciting as as Aaron and Lori's, though. Um, my background um, at Cedar Run has been um, in in all areas of the mission, but primarily in wildlife rehabilitation. So um, I've officially been the executive director since January of 2021. Okay. But prior to that, I was actually the assistant director in the wildlife hospital for five years. Um, and prior to that, I, I was a jack of all trades and a wildlife hospital intern and such. Um, but now that I'm doing... Um, you know, I'm the executive director. I over, I over, I oversee the overall operations at Cedar Run. So we have, including Lori and Aaron, um, 13 full-time staff, and then depending on the season, about another 13 to 15 part-time staff. So I'm obviously overseeing the funding um, to make this work possible, but also um, the implementation of our our long-term. Uh, strategic plans and goals um, in collaboration with our board of trustees. Okay. As a nonprofit, um, we uh, are are focused um, on our mission um, and all the policies and such are carried out um, by myself at the direction of the board of trustees. Um, we are entrusted with those public dollars um, to do that work. So as I said, we're not getting any governmental funding of any kind to do this work. Um, so the majority of our funding is individual donors. It's about 70% of the funding that we wow. get. It's just, you know, your neighbor, <laughs> yourself, um, sending in a, a membership or a cash donation. or um, And then we also have, obviously, the education programming that's earned income, you know, where Erin is going out and, 
and and getting revenue for uh, providing birthday parties and school groups and churches and so forth. And then um, obviously grant funding, um, not as much as we would like, but we certainly do get um, grant funding for the work work that we that we do. Wow, I would imagine. You know, I hadn't even thought about. You know, one of the things we always ask is how important is education to your mission? But without, I never really think of education as a revenue stream, and that's pretty interesting. How many, Aaron? How many people have you had come through the programs? That ended up becoming a volunteer, or ended up becoming employed uh, there. Has that ever happened? Yeah, actually, um, quite a few of our summer camp counselors were former campers and things like that. Um, We definitely, you know, I say we start with the young kids. Sometimes we rope them and their families in and they stick it out for the long haul. Um, So, you know, we want to instill that kind of lifelong learning, but also the giving back is a big thing, too. Um, You know, a lot of the kids that have come through our programming want to give back once they're old enough. That's wonderful. So let's let's dream big for a yeah. moment because you know at the end we're going to we're going to propose that our listeners you know get involved or help uh, whether it be with time or or money. So if obviously money has to be a, a somewhat of a, a limitation as to what you can do. If if you could dream big and and funding wasn't an issue, what what would you love to to be able to add? To the, the refuge. She didn't even need to think about it. Our building was built for 400 animals and we're doing 6,000. So wow. um, this building, we are fitting as many animals into it as we can in a very healthy uh, way possible. Um, we've moved to kind of building, you know, having shed type situations to kind of expand the animal care. Um, additionally, we're dealing with, um, you know, zoonotic diseases like highly pathogenic avian influenza right now. So we're having to do a lot of quarantine areas and things like that. Um, but certainly I know, uh, we could benefit a lot from having more space, um, and you know, just being able to kind of move into the future um, as much as possible. But but we definitely do what we can. We're just always working as uh, efficiently mm-hmm. as possible to stay <laughs> on top of making sure animals are moving along in the process when they can. So yeah, and that's definitely our our biggest cost at Cedar Run is operating the wildlife hospital. I mean, we talked about this already a little bit that. These animals don't come in with insurance or, or an owner to pay for the bill. So, I mean, anybody that has pets will know how expensive it is to get veterinary care. Um, so our wildlife hospital is doing that essentially at no cost, you know, to the public. Um, so we, we do ask for donations when, when folks drop off animals, although um, the average cost, you know, to if we were to break even would be about $82 per animal. Wow. Which still, I mean, compared to a veterinary. That's still a deal. Yeah. Is a deal. Um, <laughs> yeah. But on average, if we averaged it out um, in 2022, our average donation by drop-off or by, by patient um, was about $16. So that gap there has to be filled with, you know, education programs, memberships, gift shop sales, visitor admission, and so forth to, to fill that gap. Um, and obviously our, our most urgent need will be, you know, constructing 
a wildlife, an additional wildlife building um, because we are just busting at the seams. Um, but I'd say, you know, in addition to that, if money was no object, I think we would all love if we could just ensure that we tear down any barrier to what we're providing here. Um, I mean, we are completely reliant on, you know, things like the earned income from education programs, on visitor admissions, on memberships. We'd love it. You know, if money wasn't an object, we'd get rid of all that and just provide <laughs> it all for free to the public, yeah. you know, because ultimately we're, we want to, to develop a better harmony between, you know, the environment and wildlife and, and humans. And if we could provide, you know, that environmental education um, and access to nature totally for free to everybody, that would be the best way to achieve the goal. But Unfortunately, we have bills to pay in the meantime. And and besides that, if you think of just having 180 plus acres without stewardship, it it goes into degradation. Like there's there's upkeep just having that. You can't just say this is a natural area. We're just going to put a fence around it, and it's gonna it's going to be okay. There's stewardship involved in that as well. Being able to make sure you have the best habitat available um, to do that. Absolutely. So I would imagine that that's a challenge also. Absolutely. So we do have um, a facilities and stewardship manager. He's one person, but uh, <laughs> he's, he's got a good group of volunteers that, that help him out. But um, he's overseeing, in addition to stewarding the land, he also has to manage all of our buildings as well. So um, every time a light goes out in the nature center <laughs> or a toilet gets broken in the wildlife hospital or whatever it could be, he gets to do that job. But yeah, there's 171 acres that, you know, we've been entrusted to protect for generations to come. Um, we want to make sure that we're not only preserving it, but also enhancing it for, for the wildlife that called this place home. And, and speaking of volunteers, I was once <laughs> once at where uh, Eclipse Brewery in Merchantville, and on the bathroom wall, someone had written in in big letters – Please donate to Cedar Run <laughs> Wildlife Refuge, which was I, I thought was the most interesting bathroom graffiti I'd ever seen. Um, but that that says something about how passionate people are about what you do and the volunteers that you have. How many volunteers do you you typically have throughout the year, and and how long have some of these volunteers been with you? Well, I'm glad you saw my graffiti. (laughs) (laughs) I have a picture that I can share. (laughs) Um, So I'll speak for our assistant director of wildlife rehabilitation, who's also our volunteer coordinator. Um, She manages uh, over 250 volunteers at Cedar Run every year. Um, Probably close to 200 of those are focused on the wildlife hospital. Um, the majority of them are going to want to get involved with direct hands-on animal care. And then additionally, um, as I had mentioned before, we have about 9 to 12 interns um, within the wildlife hospital. Erin generally has interns, um, and our development team also takes interns, um, and they are volunteer as well. So we actually just did um, a calculation for something else that we're working on coming up, and our volunteers and interns and all of that um, probably equal throughout the year an extra, if it would be probably equivalent to full-time, an extra 11 to 13 staff members. Wow. 
um, which is very significant, but they are really the lifeblood of this organization. We would not be able to save nearly as many animals as we do without their help. Um, we have really committed people. We have people that are coming multiple times a week um, to donate their time. We have um, some that donate both for us and also for Erin and also for events. And um, probably our longest one, oh man, she's, Hi, she's probably, I think it's Randy. I think she's, I mean, it might be going 30, almost 30 years or so. Yeah. Um, so we have a few that have been with us for a really long time. They're still going strong, still enjoying what they're doing. Um, but it really depends on the year. We have a good core vo- uh, group of volunteers and then every year we'll get a new influx and um, some stay for the summer and some stay for years. So. Yeah. Do you find a lot of your volunteers like to do a little bit of everything or they really like one thing in particular or they specialize or are they well-rounded? I would say our volunteers definitely will have like a favorite species. Um, You know, they'll either really love raccoons or they'll really love birds. There's really usually like specific people that love birds. Um, But we generally are having them get their hands kind of in everything. Um, certainly our volunteers to work with raccoons and animals that are considered rabies vector species, they have to come to us or get uh, the pre-exposure rabies vaccinations before they can go anywhere near them. Um, but otherwise, you know, we try to get them mixed into kind of everything. And they're not just doing, you know, animal care the whole time. They're washing dishes, they're doing laundry, they're washing carriers. So there's a lot of dirty work and stuff that's not necessarily fun but extremely important to the success. Um, but, but yeah, they'll have their favorites. Um, <laughs> that might be what keeps them coming back. Um, but we really do need them to be flexible with what they're willing to do because on any given day, depending on who you have, you have to kind of be able to put them where you need them. Stay tuned for more of the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. It's it's easy to imagine how hard it would be doing what you do without them. And and speaking of resources, is there a network of other refuges? Like say you come across something that you've never come across. Is there someone that you can call and say, hey, do you have any experience with this? Is there yeah. – like is there other places that – do kind of what you do on maybe on a larger or smaller scale that are close or somewhere that you know someone where you're like, I need to make a phone call, see if if we can yeah. pull resources on this. Yeah, that's a great question. We, you've got uh, myself. I'm the president of the New Jersey Association of Wildlife Rehabilitators. Oh, wow. Our, our board secretary. Um, <laughs> so NJAWR, um, check it out, NJAWR.org. Um, it, it is the network of state licensed wildlife rehabilitator. So we definitely collaborate um, because everybody kind of has different species that they're permitted for. Um, They may get a species in that they've never seen before. Um, You know, some that are more rare, like, you know, oh my God, I just got a mink. I've never treated a mink and I got one in that was hit by a car. Let me call Lori at Cedar Run. Maybe she's seen it before and we'll do the same. We may get in, you know, a hognose snake and it's got a certain issue. And we're like, oh my God, we better call our friends up at Woodlands Wildlife Refuge. So that network is incredibly 
important. And there's also the, the national network, the National Wildlife Rehabilitators Association, um, where the same thing can be done. Um, at this point, there's um, private Facebook groups and everything else to try to, to connect everybody, but absolutely that network is critical. Yeah, I mean, truly what I've found in this field is that I've never worked with a more collaborative group of people. Um, you know, I certainly have mentors at other centers that have been doing this for, you know, 30 or more years. And it doesn't matter how long you've been doing it. They might contact me for something. I might contact them for something. Um, everybody, whether it's within your state or outside of your state, rehabilita- rehabilitators are just so collaborative um, because really they just want to do what's best for the animal and have the best outcome. So I've, I've always, you know, if needed, reached out and, and they will easily do the same for us. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a lot harder as wildlife rehabilitators for us to access information. Um, there's near, not nearly as much research. I mean, you could look up any issue about domestic cats that you can think of, and somebody has probably done a study on it. Um, for wildlife, not the case, um, especially, you know, with a lot of the medications. You know, if you're treating a certain issue in a wild animal, chances are there's not a study out there. Um, so you have to talk to people that, you know, have done this work and have have used these different treatments um, for the animals because there's just not research out there and primarily because there's not anybody paying for it. <laughs> Whereas, you know, in the domestic industry, there's a lot of money to be made, but in wildlife, not so much. I, I can imagine how challenging that is. And speaking of challenges, I know we brought up a few of them. Like what are what are some of the biggest challenges in being able to do what you do on a on a daily basis? Um I'd say we, we talked about this already, but funding, <laughs> that's um, the, the number one um, issue for us is, is con- the continual need for funds to make this work possible because, you know, it's it's not only remained constant, but it has increased. Um, I know Lori and I haven't been in the wildlife hospital, you know, years ago. I remember it was record-breaking year when we treated 3,000 animals a year or 4,000 animals a year. Now we're treating over 6,000 and and that number continues to increase um, for a whole plethora of, of reasons. Um, but that also comes with a price tag um, for, for us to be able to do that work. So constantly working on keeping up with that funding is definitely um, a, a, one of our biggest challenges, if not the biggest. And I'd say... Second to that, you know, for, for me, especially when it comes to wildlife rehabilitation and even environmental education to a certain extent, is misinformation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just, it's just constant. I mean, the, the Internet is great in some respects. Um, if you Google injured wildlife, um, chances are there's some algorithm that's going to connect you with Cedar Run or another wildlife center. Um, but you're also going to find a lot of junk that's really dangerous for the person doing the search sometimes. It's not great for the animal. Um, so people very quickly think that they're educated on a topic um, and can, with the best of intentions, end up doing a lot of harm in the meantime. Um, and then even it's, it's true even with, you know, the environmental education issue, um, if, depending on where you're getting your information from, um, if you're not checking your sources, <laughs> um, combating that misinformation can be a huge challenge for us. Yeah, I think that's really where our, you know, the parts of our mission, um, at least education and rehabilitation, really intersect because 
we do hear people getting a lot of mis misinformation. We are seeing the aftermath of that misinformation and how that directly affects that animal's uh, ability to survive to release. Um, you know, and errands out there trying to spread information because this isn't, you know, especially information about native wildlife. Kids aren't just getting that in their normal education. Um, and so that makes what Erin and her team does so important because we're hoping in the future that this misinformation isn't going to become as much of a problem. But yeah, I would, I would agree. Kind of the, the misinformation is a big thing. Like, you know, um, we had a resident raccoon who was raised by a person, you know, became imprinted, that kind of thing. But the kids are constantly seeing it online of all these crazy YouTube videos of raccoons being people's pets and stuff like that. So they're seeing it as a good thing. But then hopefully when they're coming and seeing us, they're realizing, you know, what the real issue is behind that is as adorable as it is on TV or on, on the computer. It really influences those animals lives. I would imagine that's hard to combat. Like education is is the best way to do that, but especially, you know, you can say anyone's like, oh, my my grandmother used to rehabilitate animals in the backyard, and this is how she did, and this is how it should be done. I don't need to do that. We even see that with plants because not anyone can deal with plants. You don't have to have a college degree to 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 work with mm -hmm. plants. So it's just like, oh yeah, I had a friend that. You say this this doesn't grow there. Oh no, my my aunt grew it in Alaska for years and then sold it. And it's yeah. you know everyone seems to feel a lot that they know better based on some experience they had uh, with a family member or so forth. So maybe that's a good way to segue into what are what are some of the more popular misconceptions that people have about what you do. Um, I, I'd say for for me, one of the ones that I'm constantly making sure that I, I try to get us past is that people think that, you know, the work that we are doing is just like a, a cutesy extra, like, oh, well, if we have time, we'll learn about our environment or um, a place like the wildlife hospital at Cedar Run, like, oh, well, you know, that's there, but nature will just take its course with without a place like that. And that's couldn't be further from the truth. Um, you know, especially when it comes to the wildlife hospital, I mean, far and away, the number one reason we're getting animals in is because of human caused issues, mm -hmm. uh, getting hit by a car, getting poisoned, getting orphaned for any number of reasons. Um, you name it. These out, these animals are out there getting exposed to, to all kinds of stuff. So we're trying our best to, to offset that human impact. Um, and the same can be said about, you know, the environmental education and just on-site visitors as well. Um, you know, the environment, this, the planet that you're living on um, is not just a, a fun extra that you can know stuff about if you're bored. Like, you are a member of this planet, and we all are reliant on a, on a, a healthy environment around us. So trying to underscore just how important the work that we are doing is and how vital and essential environmental education and wildlife rehabilitation are to everyone's health, animal, uh, wildlife, humans, all or otherwise. We all rely on that. And, and let's be honest, that pressure is only going to get worse. The amount of cases that you mm -hmm. see over time, I, I don't see that getting better. I see that multiplying year after year, and that just makes what you do more important because – Wildlife, they 
there's just not as many advocates. It's one thing to to speak on their behalf, <laughs> but it's another thing to do something. And I think we're all starting to learn that lesson: how important the food web is. And this, yeah. you know, at at uh, first glance, maybe this animal doesn't seem that important to everything that's going on. But if you factor in how it interacts with this animal or how it interacts with this plant, what its purpose is. Um, you know, people I, – I think a lot of people didn't think in that manner and hopefully through education and over time and, and as we lose resources that that's starting to change. And that's kind of why I was asking if you're seeing a more educated person coming in for education because they, they, they want to know more about this or, or they're trying to find out how they can help um, because we're, we're seeing a, a difference just in the amount of people that listen to the podcast mm-hmm. that, are, that are attending these uh, – you know, a lot of our our listeners or, or former guests, their uh, their uh, programs. You know, just because they're 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 learning a little bit more, and they're like, "Oh, I didn't hadn't thought about that." Hadn't, you know, it's it's getting more critical. <laughs> if I, you know that. But, well, I think too. You know, from the amount of intakes of animal admits that we get. Um, you can see that there's there's no sh- real shortage of people who care about these animals. Um, they care enough to drive these animals out to us. Um, certainly, there's people that do not great things, like people who you know we've had instances of getting hawks that were shot and mourning doves that were shot. But the majority of the public that that make the effort to bring out animals out to us care a ton about these animals. Um, and they just want to do what's best. And a lot of the misinformation, like Mike said, it's not ill will or anything like that, that these bad situations happen. They're really going online and trying to find information because they don't know what to do, because they don't yet have education on that. They have zero idea where to look. They go online. They think they find proper information. Um, but unfortunately, they get bad information. But they are generally really trying to help these animals. Um, so letting people know the proper information i think is so key because they don't want to make the mistake of putting this animal in harm's way um they're just getting really bad information online but the people that come out to us you know we probably get over you know 3500 people bringing these 6000 animals to us and you know pretty much every single one of them cares a lot about what the outcome of this animal is going to be and hopes for the best for sure mm-hmm. What what is and and you spoke about a few of them earlier. Do do Mike or Aaron? Do you have like a Cedar Run success story that makes it? Maybe it's it's just uh, a former volunteer or or uh, a former camp student. Is there a success story that makes you warm inside when you think about it? When you since we're talking about people that care, I'm imagining if they go through the trouble to bring you an animal, they 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 care and and they're invested at this point. Absolutely. I think I have um, a segment that is really exciting to me, and that's the, all the veterinary students that have been produced, you know, through our wildlife hospital. It's it's kind of a way for us to um, put that seed in their head. Um, students that are, you know, getting their, their pre-vet degree and they get an internship at Cedar Run, and we're trying to drop that seed about <laughs> wildlife rehabilitation and then they go to vet school and you know i'd say the majority end up being because it pays the bill you know cat and dog vet um but if there's just a few that we can impress you know the wildlife rehabilitation on and the few that are willing to to do that work i think that to me is just so special 
Um, you know, and and every year we're we're working with um, interns in in all facets of Cedar Run, but the bulk of them being in the wildlife rehabilitation hospital. So seeing them go on to to vet school and then going into practice and then quite a few of them ending up at other wildlife centers throughout the country. To me, I mean, that's just, that just blows my mind. Oh, that's pretty yeah, amazing. My interns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Quite a few of them have gone off to vet school. We have um, interns that are, you know, working um, in zoo science at, as keepers at zoos, um, some out doing field research. So it feels really great. Like Mike is saying to be able to contribute towards their future and, you know, um, kind of start that spark of a love of wildlife because most of them have had no wildlife experience before they come to us. They've worked with, you know, maybe some cats and dogs, some farm animals. Um, but when they come here, you can watch them fall in love with wildlife and actively watch them fall in love with Cedar Run. Um, so that's pretty special. Erin, how about you? You have a story that pops into your head? I would go in the opposite direction instead of putting that spark for the young folks. Um, sometimes we kind of spark it for the older folks. All right. Um, so we have one very long-term volunteer. I'm sure Mike and Larry know who I'm talking about, um, who retired, um, came to Cedar Run with his grandkids and witnessed one of our education programs and then um, started to volunteer not long after that. Um, he worked in our wildlife hospital to start, then he moved on to helping with our outside animals, um, and now he um, works with our birds of prey, hoping her, helping train them and teach the public about them. Um, and he puts in, he's pretty much at the refuge every day, sometimes <laughs> multiple times yeah. a day, um, and puts in thousands and thousands of hours each year. Um, his wife joined him after a couple years, she volunteers with us as well. So it's kind of, it's completely different from his original career path, um, but it really has been like the love of his life. Um, so I very, love very different than those college students. But. <laughs> <laughs> like Aaron's saying, it really, you do see for people, this is kind of something as volunteers, something fun that they do on the side of their, you know, their other work. And they may have always wanted to work with animals, but they're working, stuck working in an office or something like that. And I do really feel like it is a reprieve from, you know, for them from, you know, from the stresses of life and, you know, something that they really get to look forward to during the week, um, which I love. I love being able to provide that for people. Yeah. One other thing I would want to add, Fran, you have, have such good questions. Thank you. Um, it would be even for the youngest of folks as well. I think something that I definitely learned through my time here um, is, is the access that a lot of kids don't have to nature. I think I definitely took that for granted. I was very lucky in that my family was always out in nature. We were camping and, and all of that. Erin is, you know, is taking these kids out on hikes that have literally never been on a trail, wow. which seems unimaginable that like a nine-year-old could make it nine years and but if they've never had that opportunity um you know to go out on a trail or to learn about nature and a lot of them are terrified you know they're like oh my god this box turtle is terrifying and we're like it's a box turtle why are you scared but they've never they they haven't been exposed um you know to environmental education like that um so seeing them have those experiences to me you know is really special because you never know which one of them is going to fall in love with it 
you know, and end up being the future Lori or Erin, you know. Um, a lot of them are jobs. <laughs> I especially love Erin's one student who's a little girl who loves vultures. Oh. <laughs> She's had vultures at most of her birthday parties. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I love that. Have Have you... Lori, this is specifically for you. And I know you said that you can't take domesticated animals, but there has there ever been an instance where someone brought an animal and you had to say no? Yes. Okay. Um, it happens more than you would think. Um, people will find there's definitely a misconception about things like feral cats. Um, we'll get calls about them. They'll say, we found a feral kitten. Can you take it? We'll explain that's not native wildlife. And they say, well, it lives outside. Um, and so we kind of have to explain that even though something is feral, that doesn't make it wildlife and it's definitely not native. Um, so we've had to turn that away. We get, um, definitely a lot of people that find domestically raised, um, and like homing pigeons, um, we're not able to take those. Sometimes people find kittens and puppies and think that they're possums or think that they're, you know, a coyote pup or something. So there's definitely some um, confusion around species, especially when they're babies, because yeah. they don't look exactly like the adults are going to look. Um, but yeah, so we've had to turn them away, but we try to give them contacts like the local, um, you know, animal shelters um, or reptile rescues. A lot of people will find things like red ear sliders in the wild that people just don't want to take care of anymore, and they'll just kind of dump them out into a pond. Um, and of course, just like any turtle, they're going to walk in a road probably and and unfortunately get hit by a car. And so we'll have to refer them to, um, you know, a rescue specifically for those um, exotic species of turtles. But it's great to know that there's other resources for those mm-hmm. in, an, in an instance where you have to do that. That's that's fantastic to know. Yeah, we get a lot of weird calls like a pig running around in the woods, um, a peacock. So we have farm <laughs> rescues and stuff we can refer them to because we don't want to just say no and give them no answer or no yeah. resource. So. What is – so this is Cedar Run now. What is the future of Cedar Run? Are you maxed? Is this a, like are you operating at a way like if like you said if if a new hospital was in in the cards that could happen? But what what would you say? You you've been there all of you all have been there over a decade. What would you say you predict Cedar Run being in the next ten years? I wish we had that control to decide. <laughs> I always tell people that um, we, we have an excellent, amazing team of staff and volunteers and a board of trustees here. It, uh, if there's nobody more equipped to keep up with what we are doing, but we are not deciding what is max. The, the need for our services is determining that. Um, you know, if, if we said 6,000 wild animals are our max, what happens after that? Um, so we can't really, you know, and we wouldn't want to draw that line in the sand and say this is our max. We are pushing the envelope and we are keeping up with and and improving, you know, what we're providing, you know, especially in the wildlife hospital perspective, but also from the, the nature center and the environmental education perspective, um, like you, you said, Fran, it's becoming more and more of a pressing matter you know, our environment and our climate and educating people about that. We're not deciding what really the cap is. We want to keep up with it and get ahead of it. Um, so that really is our long-term plan is to is to continue to keep up with the need for our services 
um, and expand, you know, what we're able to provide to the public. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we've kind of proven that since, you know, 2000 and I think 18, we've had about a 24% increase in animals brought to the hospital. Wow. So mm-hmm. we've really, especially over COVID, we saw a huge influx, you know, people were outside more, people were off work. Um, and we just got inundated over the last few years of, of more animals coming out to us. And so we really kind of have to bob and weave and do what we can and find extra places to take and care for these animals, take on more volunteers, take on more interns, you know, for that animal care. Um, and so, yeah, we just kind of respond as we have to. That's just, I think, kind of the nature of the job. Um, and Aaron's constantly developing new programs to, to give out to people. So, <laughs> the I'm sorry, Tom, that was going to be one of um, one of my questions. Is what are some of your guys' favorite events throughout the year? Um, and Aaron, I'd start with you since you're you're coordinating a lot of that. But like, what are you really uh, okay. big ones, little I ones, that kind of stuff? Yeah, I mentioned earlier we do a lot of different types of stuff. Um, My thing that I tend to be the one that does is our preschool programs. Um, I just like being with the little kids and doing, you know, kind of sparking that joy with them. Um, But event-wise, I always enjoy our Autumn with the Animals Festival, which is coming up in September. Um, It's a good day for the whole family, not just the kids. Uh, Gets them out to the refuge, even if they've been there before. We're putting on, you know, animal programs. They're canoeing on the lake. Um, they're seeing all the animals up close and it's great for folks that haven't been there to kind of get a nice taste of what we do do. Um, and hopefully we'll get them back in the future, but it's, uh, we see six to 800 people in a couple hours and it's a, it's a real great family fun day. Awesome. Awesome. Are are there, uh, how about Lori and Mike, do you have any favorites? Well, I I think I might have a new favorite coming up or, we have our 5K every year, no. but but this year we're we're remixing it. Um, traditionally, it's just been a um, a standard family friendly 5K, but this year we're going to have six breweries involved and have Ooh. a beer garden. So it's it's now called Tails, Trails, and Ales. So it'll be a 5K <laughs> trail run, but um, there's also a beer garden at the end. Um, or if you're like me and you're just going to skip the 5K entirely, you can just go straight to the beer garden. <laughs> That's an option as well. So um, that will be the end of September. Um, I think it's the week right after Autumn with the Animals. So I'm really looking forward to that event. Um, and also our wine and wildlife, which we hold in July. That's that's a favorite of mine. And well, I don't know if you're seeing a theme here, but uh, <laughs> I think <laughs> I, I think the 5K yeah. ale is my new favorite, my new yeah. favorite event. I do have a bum knee, so I have an excuse of just <laughs> passing go and going right to the end. Yeah, join, join me in the beer garden, friend. All right, I'll, <laughs> you got it. I'll be there. Um. For me, I do help uh, with the 5K, so I have a bit of an attachment to that. I think Autumn with the Animals is probably one of the best ones for Cedar Run, too, because it showcases our education team, and they're kind of all doing their thing um, at once at the facility. And so there's a ton of offerings for people and families of all ages. Um, But I do also love our Halloween event. Um, It's pretty cute to see the kids dressed up in their costumes to come trick-or-treating, um, there's a movie, there's a campfire, there's s'mores, all of that. Um, but I love when the kids, um, kind of recreate one of our residents 
in their costumes. So <laughs> that's pretty adorable to see their take on our residents. Fall's <laughs> a very busy time for yeah. us with, with events. The majority of our on-site events are held in the fall. So we have mm-hmm. Autumn with the Animals, then Tales, Trails, and Ales, then Halloween, and then our final one of the fall, which is a newer one that that is for the, the people that like the spooky stuff, is Cedar Run for Your Life. Which is a, <laughs> uh, a, a haunted guided hike through the woods. I like yeah. that. Yeah. I like that, that one's not for me. I'm, Ooh, I'm, that I one, like this. That one. That is for your son, Grant. It is for my because son because yeah. he loves everything spooky. He sure does. Yeah. Now you have to go. Yeah. <laughs> At least it's guided, and we don't just set you free in the woods in the dark, not knowing where you're going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So given how long each of you have been with Cedar Run and that you've kind of worked through different positions, I I thought it would be interesting to our listeners just how each of you found your way to Cedar Run and and what got you hooked, like how you ended up there, what got you hooked to make you stay. Okay, I'll start. Okay. (laughs) So uh, I went to um, school for biology and I have a master's in environmental science. Um, I always kind of – Thought I, I always knew I wanted to work with animals, I guess I'll say, and I thought I would work um, in zookeeping or something like that. I didn't know wildlife rehabilitation even existed, and I got finished with grad school, and I thought, wow, I'm bored. What should I do when I'm not working? And that's how I ended up as a volunteer at Cedar Run, and after about the first or second shift, I thought, to heck with zookeeping. This is what I want to do. Um, the feeling of rehabilitating animals and being able to release them back into the wild is just a whole kind of other level for me. Um, I had been working kind of interim jobs, um, doing um, uh, kind of personalized medicine, human genetic testing, um, lab work, and I hated being inside. Um, The work was interesting, but being in a lab was, you know, soul crushing for me. So um, because I did always want to work with animals and be outside. So this job after I got it, um, you know, after I started as part-time staff, I just thought this is what I'm going to do. And I just waited my time out until <laughs> the people left in front of me and worked as hard as I could and made myself available as much as possible. Um, and that landed me here. And, you know, every day I'm grateful to have the position. Awesome. Erin, how about you? Um, kind of similar to Lori, did not want to be in an office um, my whole life. My degree is environmental science, too, um, from Stockton University. And um, everyone's like, what are you going to do with that? And I had absolutely no idea. <laughs> um, before I started at Cedar Run, I interned with Fish and Wildlife. Um, that got me outside. That got me teaching. That got me learning a little more wildlife background type stuff. And actually, all of the interns that summer got to visit Cedar Run um, for a field trip. And then once my time there ended, um, I applied for summer camp position, just hoping to kind of get my foot in the door. And sort of like Lori got very lucky and eventually got a job. Awesome. (laughs) I definitely knew I wanted to be outside. I liked working with the wildlife for sure. Um, And I also, you know, liked being with children and teaching them things, but didn't see myself as a classroom teacher. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. You get to do what you love, but not be constrained by a building. <laughs> I love it. All right, Mike, your turn. Well, same as Erin, I was a, a Stockton University student myself, Stockton College back in the day. 
Um, I, I knew, you know, from, from a young age that I wanted to work, um, in environmental science. I I knew I wanted to be outdoors. I also cannot stand being, you know, tethered to a desk indoors. Um, so when I was a student, um, at Stockton, I got the internship at Cedar Run, um, in the wildlife rehabilitation hospital. And I had other experiences and other internships and whatnot that were also fascinating, um, you know, the, the work that researchers do and, and so forth is so important. But when you have a wild animal in your hands that's completely reliant on you to to give it a second chance and then getting to, you know, rehabilitate and release that animal, nothing can really top that, you know, at least for me. Um, so once I got started, I knew I wanted to stay. So um, I was here at Cedar Run for part time many years. I dabbled in everything. I was in the wildlife hospital the whole time, but I also worked in our nature center. I did summer camp. I did education programs, just like Lori, you know, I wasn't going to go away. They weren't going to get rid of me. Um, I was working a corporate job even after I graduated. And I don't know if um, many of the listeners are familiar with AC Moore Arts and Crafts. That was my my high school job that turned into a a corporate day job. Um, So I would work at AC Moore's corporate office, um, which was actually pretty close here to Cedar Run. Um, and then nights and weekends was at Cedar Run until 2015 oh, wow. um, when the assistant director um, position opened up. Um, so again, I was, you know, assistant director in the wildlife hospital um, until I became the executive director. Wow. That's a, these are fantastic stories. None of you were going away. Yeah. You, they, they were stuck with all of you. Yeah, we're not going anywhere. So we're going to put all the links for everything in the show notes. But how specifically – because we're going to get asked from our listeners how they can get involved, especially people locally. So whether they want to volunteer or donate, what is the best way for everyone to to get involved? I'd say the first step um, is – uh, and you can do it right now, even as you're listening. Check out our social media. Um, follow our – we have Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. You can sign up to receive our emails. Um, that's a great first step you know, to see all that we're doing. Um, I'm a little biased, but I think we have a fantastic social media team. So there's all kinds of amazing updates about what Lori's doing in the Wildlife Hospital and what Erin's doing with the Environmental Education Programming. That's a great first step. Okay. Um, obviously, if you you like what you see, um, you can sign up for a membership. Um, but really, the the best best way to get involved would be just to come on out. You know, if you're anywhere in the South Jersey, even Philadelphia area, even North Jersey, you know, if if you don't mind a little bit of a drive, come see what we have to offer because nothing can really can compare to to that experience. I mean, we have the nature center that's open seven days a week. Um, where you can come and the nature center kind of serves as our visitor center. We have a reptile room and um, a resource room and whatnot in the building, but we have over three miles of trails. And then obviously a highlight is our wildlife housing area where we have resident animals um, out on display that um, are Cedar Run's permanent home. They could not be released back into the wild for one reason or another. Um, So come on out in person and see all that we have to offer. Yeah, especially with our events coming up. And like you said, Autumn with the Animals is just right around the corner. Um, If you really want to see what Cedar Run's all about, I think Autumn with the Animals is probably the best day to come out here and, you know, see different education programs and, 
you know, there's usually canoeing and all kinds of stuff um, to really kind of get you immersed in the, in the organization. Awesome. So I think we're, we're at about the time where we ask our last question. Unless you have a, another question, because I'm sure I cut you off a million times. No, right. no, right. but I'm going to beat you the last question. All right, go ahead. And ask, <laughs> what are your guys' favorite native plants? Well, I'll start. Um, I am a huge fan of rhododendron, specifically Rose Bay rhododendron. Right. I just think that they are so stately and evergreen and um I, I love right next to the nature center at Cedar Run. We actually have some growing kind of up the hill next to the building. Okay. And they really, the blooms that they produce are just such a showstopper for people. Um, we have, I mentioned the resource room in our nature center that has all kinds of amazing information and the live stream to the wildlife hospital. But in the spring, oh, you do have a live stream. I was going to ask that actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but people's eyes are just drawn out the window, you know, to the, to the rhododendron because they're, huge you know they're taller than me and they they produce these big beautiful blooms so they're definitely my favorite awesome all right who who would like to to take the hot seat next i'll go um so being the educator um i think my favorite are any of the carnivorous plants um specifically really enjoy the sundew and the pitcher plants um they're just fun to teach the kids about because they're not a plant that they're going to necessarily see unless someone points them out to them um and they all know about you know venus fly traps um that's something that they all have seen before but to show them the itty bitty sundews and to show them the pitcher plants that you know digest the bugs and all that great stuff um pretty much i would say any type of carnivorous plant that's a great choice. You know, we have a, a a poster in the office about native wildflowers in the area, and every time I look at it, I see sundew, and I go, I don't know if I've ever seen one naturally occurring. So now I have to come yeah. back and you and you can show me. The round leaf, and we have the spatulate leaf. We have a, the thread guys too. We have a whole bunch of different ones on property. Oh, wonderful! I'm looking forward yeah. to it. All right, Lori, you are, are on the hot seat. <laughs> this is a hot seat because I am obsessed with animals, but I know nothing about plants. All right. And when I thought you were going to ask this, I panicked and I said, what am I going to say my favorite plant is? <laughs> uh, and so Mike, of course, said, you need to say sassafras because we're on the hunt for it uh, to feed our deer that we raise here. Um, and then another one of our educators told me to say, no, 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 you need to say sweet pepper bush because it's it, – provide so much nectar to our native pollinators in the peak of summer. And I was like, okay, I'll just say both of them. <laughs> both, both great choices. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When, whenever I think of sassafras, I always think of our propagator because the plants that we grow, we go out into the wild and collect the seed. And he was saying sassafras is the most difficult one because he'll go and it'll be like it needs like two or three more days and he'll come back mm-hmm. when it's ripe. And he goes, the birds are literally fighting for the seat, like in dive bombing, he he'll just come back and go. I got I got nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're always kind of stalking through our woods here, hunting it down for yeah. our fawns. But and they love it. Yes, yes, love it. There's, um, I'm, I'm sure. You had mentioned um, a few episodes ago, um, lyre leaf stage, and it was so funny that you had mentioned that because. Um, I had taken a picture near uh, the what we call the staff house at Cedar Run. Um, I was actually taking a bottle, uh, a picture of a bottle of Tito's, thanking them for the sponsor. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but and the, there was this 
this plant in the background. I'm like, what? I wonder what this is. So I, I looked it up in the plant ID and it was Liar Leaf Sage. And the next day I listened to the episode um, where you oh, had no mentioned that. Yeah. And there's a ton of it um, in our, our parking area. And it is so tough. You know, we're driving over yeah. it back and forth and there's still a ton of it over there. <laughs> oh, that's um, awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. It sounds like you and I have to make a road trip. I think so, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very short road trip. Yeah, it is a short road trip. <laughs> we we don't have to get budget approval for that. We no, can just... no, no, no. <laughs> so this is, this is the point in the show where we always just kind of hand the stage over in, to each of you, and Tom and I will actually take a turn as well. But um, we'll give you the floor, and you can use the time however you'd like to use it. You can summarize. You can uh, – mention something we maybe we didn't mention promote something we didn't talk about but uh we hand it over and take as much time as you want and aaron let's start with you well I'll start with mike all right mike <laughs> let's start how about let's start with mike <laughs> fair enough um i would say and, and this was definitely besides you know fran and tom being great and hilarious and awesome guys um our motivation for um, for being on the podcast today was just to emphasize the importance of the interconnectedness of, you know, the nature all around us. Um, I think it's a, an old school mindset that you can just remove one puzzle piece um, and everything else will just fall into order. And that's simply not how it works. Um, I think the more we realize that native plants and wildlife and humans we are all interconnected, um, and the more we can try to strike that balance, the better off everyone will be. Um, I think a lot of the, the, the questions that we get um, at Cedar Run are people asking us, how can I support wildlife, you know, at home? What can I do at home? And there's obviously the, you know, the easy ones that are instant gratification. Sure, you can throw up a bird feeder, you know, put out a hummingbird feeder or something like that, but really... For, for me, um, one of, if not the most effective way to support wildlife um, and nature at home is to plant a native plant. Um, you know, there, you could, yeah, you could throw up a bird feeder, but if you plant an oak tree, um, you're supporting native wildlife for hundreds of years, um, much, much further than just today and, and tomorrow. Um, and I think the more we realize how interconnected every everything is the better off will be um you know you by planting a native plant you're probably supporting your favorite bird species that you want to see more of um because the larvae of an of a moth are laid on that certain plant it's everything is linked um so for me that would definitely be my my takeaway from today wonderful that's a great takeaway who would like and to go I'm next for you guys <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can go next. All right. Awesome. Um, yeah, I would just like to say thank you so much for having us, kind of letting us, you know, share our piece, of course. But um, definitely those who are interested to come out to Cedar Run, definitely make the trip. Um, something for everybody. There's always something to learn, something new to see. Um, and we would love to have you out there. Awesome. Awesome. Lori, how about you? So I think I would say two things, um, you know, as far as supporting, you know, like Mike was saying, supporting wildlife causes and things like that. Um, there's a lot of organizations to support, of course, but supporting, um, you know, Cedar Run, you can really make an impact in your backyard. Um, these are animals that you're going to see in your yard um, and around your home or around your place of business. 
And so making, you know, a contribution to Cedar Run, whether it's just making a donation or patronizing one of Erin's awesome programs or something like that, it can make a real impact right in your backyard. Um, and then also just from my perspective in the wildlife hospital, um, certainly if you find an injured or orphan native animal, please go to our website to look for the best advice or give us a call. We're always happy to answer phone calls and give out advice um, of what's best for that animal. Um, and, you know, don't just go and Google how to take care of it. Um, really try to go to a reputable organization like we talked about before, because that's going to be the best chance for that animal. Wonderful. Fantastic words of advice. Tom, would you like yeah, to go? Yeah, mine is uh, is basically... If you're in our neck of the woods, New Jersey, Eastern PA, I guess even Northern Delaware, take a trip to, to this place because it's really, really special. Um, I know I'm going to. And then, two, if you're outside that area, try and find these places near you. This is one of the things that we've always preached is is try and connect to these places that can need the, the volunteer help or need the monetary help because they go a long, long way with educating a lot of other folks who don't have that interest or experience with nature. So, yeah, that's basically all I have. I So for me, I, I don't think we shared this with you ahead of time, but when Tom and I first sat down and were formulating what the podcast would be, we put together a list of people we wanted to have on the podcast. Cedar Run was one of the initial people on the list that we had that we created three and, three and a half years ago. And we still haven't gone through that list, but at the time we didn't have a direct contact with anyone there. And fortunately, we had uh, a mutual connection uh, between an employee and, and someone who who lives is a, a next door neighbor to the nursery. And also, my son played lacrosse with her son. Um, so it was it was just interesting how we were able to connect and make this happen because even back then three and a half years ago even though it had taken us so long to have you on we knew it was a piece of the puzzle that needed to be shared as we talk about this because it mike and you couldn't be more right that it's it's all connected and you can't look at these are you know we're we're humans and those are animals and this is nature we're all connected and it's it, it's a big part and it's we're hoping hoping that this opens some eyes uh, with with our listeners, if if you're not thinking about that, that this is a part of that interconnectivity that we're always talking about, and it's a very important part of it. And this is important work, and we can't thank thank all of you enough for the the time and the commitment that that you do. It's it's so important. I can't imagine Cedar Run not existing. And thank you all of you for for doing what you do to keep it running and the passion behind it, because I I am sure that that follows through when every time someone walks through the doors that they're feeling that there's no way they're not picking up on that energy <laughs> so <laughs> so i i appreciate that and i again i know i i'm sorry to interrupt you earlier i was very happy to hear that you have a live cam because mm-hmm. i'm so into the live cam that I, I now that i know that it's there i have to i have to uh watch it that's going to so, take over your rotation of the Eagle Cam, isn't it? The Eagle Cam's old news. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is this is the new live cam for me. All right. Well, that is going to wrap us up today. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening to Mike, Aaron, and Lori from Woodford Cedar Run Wildlife Refuge. For more information, visit uh, www.cedarrun.org. 
Thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet, presented by Pylons Nursery. Thank you to the egocentric classic men for contributing our theme music. Make sure you stream or buy their music wherever you consume music. Also, thank you to Dave Bennett for our Native Plant Anthem. Uh, we're hearing uh, more and more that people are getting that song stuck in their head after the podcast, which is that that's good news because that means you're listening to the end. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet, or at Pinelands Nursery. And you can also follow us at YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Don't forget about the question and comment line, which has been lighting up recently. Uh, can't thank you enough for that. Make sure you call us at 215-346-6189. I will repeat that. 215-346-6189. Ask a question or leave a comment. We'll do our best to play it on a future episode of The Buzz. And I want to welcome all the new members that have joined the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. Uh, we couldn't do it without you, and we appreciate all the kind and generous responses. Yeah, so you can buy Native Plants Healthy Planet merch at our website, www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. There's a link right at the top, takes you to our Teespring store. Uh, we don't keep any of the money from that. It got, well, Like I've explained many times, it goes into <laughs> a pot, which is our PayPal account, and then we go and say, hey, we don't really need this, so let's give it to someone who it would actually make a big difference for. So last donation was the Outdoor Equity Alliance, um, which went out, what, a week or two ago now? Yeah. And, um, so, yeah, now we're building up that lump sum once again so I can play Publishers Clearinghouse and, and give it all away. <laughs> so, but uh, And then you can listen to our podcast. Well, you're listening to it right now. But uh, if if you don't know where to find this, someone sent you a clip or something like that, we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, really wherever you consume your podcasts. Uh, and do us a big favor if you are listening and you enjoy it is leave a five-star review and hit subscribe. Um, if you do a little write-up with those five-star reviews, I give you a shout-out on our Buzz episodes, uh, thanking you for the, the very kind words. Yes, so yeah. Uh, yeah. we appreciate it. Yeah, and with that, I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thank you again, everyone. Uh, Mike, Laurie, and Aaron, thank you so much for spending so much time with us today. We really appreciate it. Uh, this has been a real eye-opener for me as well. So coming up next week, we will have a new Buzz episode, and make sure you tune in. And until then, keep it native. Wild, like no need to disguise. Native plants, how you grace this land. In your diversity, we will take a stand. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.